Hi, my name's Oran. I'm an ancestral pattern shifter, a mindset coach, a group facilitator, and a multidisciplinary artist. This is Coherence Podcast, the show about how multidisciplinary artists and creatives make sense of all the different things they do. I'm your host, Melissa Wong, and in this episode, I'll be speaking with Aran Lee about her long-term relationship with her art, how she frames her creative practice as a pleasure practice, and her ongoing investigation into what it means to be an ancestral pattern shifter. Aran is someone who brings the realness to each conversation we have, and this one is no different. So settle in, get comfy, let's go. I am here today with Aran Lee, who is a multidisciplinary artist, mindset coach, and group facilitator who uses a whole mix of things, art, improv, conversation, storytelling, to really help us shift ancestral patterns that we have. And I met Aran through our shared work facilitating with a company called Experience Institute, which is a global education studio that is reimagining higher education and professional development. And we were in the same team building, internal kind of meeting and sparked a curiosity about each other and set up a one-on-one call. And since then, we've had some really sweet conversations and I've just felt like around someone who it's so easy to just go deep right away and suddenly we're in these like really juicy, sweet conversation pockets together and just feeling like the time passes like it's nothing. So uh, she was an obvious person I wanted to invite on the show and I'm excited to just have her share more about her journey to the modalities that she works in currently that really help her make her impact. And I think I'm continuing to get to know Iran, but one of her strengths that I take inspiration from is the ability to bring color and fun to her art, to her interaction. So let's let's dive in here. I want to start by asking you about how you introduce yourself at this current moment in time. Yeah. Well, thanks, Melissa, for having me on. I'm so tickled to be doing this. It's a very surreal experience. Yeah. How do I, how do I show up in the world? How do I spend most of my time? I'm an artist first and foremost. I'm a improv actor, improv teacher. I'm a visual artist. I just like making things. And all of that leads into my group facilitation work and my authenticity mindset coaching work. And if I'm not doing any of those three, I'm usually just pondering a lot, usually internally and wondering like, oh, why did I respond that way? Or like, hmm, I'm I'm guessing that's a codependent thing or like just getting really curious about the inner workings of me and how that impacts my relationship to myself and how that impacts how I show up in connection with other people. Yeah. Lots of ruminating. (laughs) That's why I think we get along. Lots of analysis and introspection. You mentioned that you feel like first and foremost, you're an artist. And I wonder how you arrived there when you look back in your past what point in your life do you feel like you actually were able to identify and really kind of own that artist identity? Yeah. 
Um, let's do some time travel. <laughs> I, I knew I was an artist really young. I couldn't put the word artist. I, I didn't know what the label was. But intrinsically, I realized this makes me feel good. I want more of this. And the reason why that was so important to me, especially when I was young, was because I, I grew up in a household where I had an alcoholic parent. And because of that, there was a lot of undiagnosed mental health challenges in my family that I couldn't label as such. And there was a lot of violence. There was a lot of unsafety that I experienced in my childhood. But my mom, she took my younger sister and I to art classes after school. And I realized like, I can be anyone here. I can do anything I want. And there is this tangible thing that is reflecting back to me. This matters to me. I created this. And that was that one place in my life where I felt safe, where I felt like I could explore my identity. And that was in such stark contrast to the home life I was navigating. And so I really clung to art as a way of survival initially, because I needed joy, I needed pleasure. And I just kept holding on to it. And that really angered my sense of self when I was really young and needed some, something to build out the contours of me. Mm. Yeah, I really appreciate you sharing that. And it's, it's nice to travel back in time just to kind of see how deep the roots go. And, uh, you know, I could imagine maybe someone else reacting to a home life where it could have been more about regimentation and showing up and not necessarily expressing oneself or, or finding pockets for fun and joy. And I'm so glad to hear that, that you had the wherewithal, even at that young age, to know that that was a place of safety for yourself and kind of maybe a counterbalancing force or energy during that time. Yeah. And, you know, I'm, I'm really lucky that I had parents who, in spite of their, you know, in spite of their toxic marriage, in spite of their own unhealed traumas, they saw, they saw how, uh, how creative I was. And, that must have been novel for them as parents. Like, oh, look at our daughter doing this weird thing. How, how cute is that? How, how fun is that? And they had an open mind to it. And this is a big deal because first generation Korean folks generally, you know, they want you to get all A's and do the math homework and do the science stuff. It, there's not much of encouragement for the arts. So that was, I, I realized how lucky I am to have parents who supported that. Mm, yeah. Was art, I don't know, even if we personify art for a minute and it's like you've been in this long-term relationship, has it been this like steady, <laughs> sweet space for you? Or have there been any chapters where you felt estranged or like you could, you know, oh, I can't hang out with art anymore? 
I'm loving this question. I'm, I'm sure you can like, I know podcast, a podcast is, is famously not a visual medium, but just, just for the listeners, like my, my whole body is like lit up with this, with this notion of calling my relationship to art as a long-term relationship. Cause it totally is. Yes. Yes. I definitely had periods where, you know, when you're growing up, you start to figure out like, oh, there is like, there is like a society, there is like social groups. And what is the difference between belonging and acceptance? And where do you belong? And how do you contort yourself to belong? And as I got older, I realized, I really took on that like, firstborn pressure, like the force, the firstborn who had these duties to family and I somehow internalized as art that was something that would get in the way of that, you know, because I wanted to save my parents. I wanted to be the child who fixed my dad's alcoholism, uh, fixed my parents' broken marriage. And when you're young and you're not quite sure of how to navigate the complexities of those types of things, you just kind of, you think in binary. It's either yes or no, art or no art. And I started to realize that art was something that I had to hide, something that I couldn't really uh, put at the forefront of my identity. It's something that I do as a hobby. I relegate it to like, it's just for funsies. It's, it's nothing serious because I got to be serious and <laughs> apply to law school. <laughs> and, I, and I laugh at that. I laugh at that because that younger version of me who, I mean, bless her, she just wanted to make her parents happy. That was her whole identity. She couldn't separate herself from that role that was projected onto her. And it also, I, I just wanted to survive a chaotic childhood. So the social messaging around art being this frivolous thing and my peers not quite getting why art was so important you just start to internalize that being a creative person kind of puts you on the outside. So I put art on the outside. But then as I got older and especially in my 20s, I, I started to have anxiety attacks. I had really bad bouts of depression. And I knew, I knew that it was because I felt far away from my creative practices. But then I was still stuck in that mindset of, well, art as a vocation is not practical. And when you're a first-generation immigrant who comes from a conservative background, art doesn't seem like a feasible, practical choice. But the desire for it was so strong because I was actually getting sick from not being, in, uh, not communing with that part of me. So I, I tried to find the practical route. Right. So I studied web design and wanted to become a web designer and save the world by one beautiful website at a time. <laughs> and, and, you know, that led me to um, moving from D.C. to California to the Bay Area and thinking that, oh, OK, that land, that place will have all these creatives who will really understand what this what this means for me. But then I got here and I realized, oh, people 
people just want to make money. Like it's it's not really about the purity of creation. It's about you create for efficiency, you create for productivity, you create for capital. So my initial falling in love process with love was the purity of it. It made me feel safe. It made me be the architect of myself. It empowered me. And yet the way I was expressing my art was for the purpose of capital. And something about that felt really incongruent. And I couldn't reconcile how, but I'm pursuing something creative. Why am I so incredibly miserable? And this web design job that I was doing, the people fired me because I was not a good web designer. And I was like, well, shit, what do I do now? I tried the practical thing and it didn't work. This must mean art for me is not the path. And I had a real crisis around that because the one thing that made me feel like me the most was being in creation, calling myself an artist, calling myself and claiming that label as creative. So does this mean I, I let that go? And I was married at the time when I was, you know, asking these questions and my mental health got really bad and I couldn't work anymore. But, you know, I had all the time in the day to do whatever I wanted. So I slowly came back to creating what I originally did, which was a lot of illustration and making things with my hands. And I realized maybe I give this like art thing a chance, like be an artist full time. And this was when artists started to harness the power of social media. And I was like, well, if all these folks are doing art online, then maybe that's where I put my art. And I tried that. And there was something about migrating over to social media platforms that made it really uncomfortable for me because my identity as an artist still wasn't, um, it was still something that was in the closet halfway. And from that place of wobble, putting my art on social media started to make the making part like homework. I don't know if you remember, but there were these challenges of like, like create art every single day. Mm -hmm. Those challenges, right? And I was like, ah, oh, like I'm gonna be on trend and like make art every day. And then I tried that and, and it didn't feel good because there was this like hyper productivity energy behind it. Because for me, art is, art requires a lot of downtime to ruminate and to digest and to reflect on. But there's no time for that if you're posting things every day. Mm. And so I fell out of love with my art. I feel like in hearing your UX web design chapter, makes me feel like a lot of people probably attempt something similar where they're like, I'm going to somehow fuse two value sets or try to find a bridge opportunity that somehow pacifies and satisfies this kind of maybe value set that I'm been, I've been steeped in for a while. And then it'll help maybe me feel more actualized or fulfilled. And maybe sometimes that works for, for people, but a lot of times if it's kind of muddying 
muddying the waters in some ways. It's not purely the new set of values, or not that it was new for you, but to really return to art and kind of in, I know stories can sometimes just feel so neat compared to what it feels like in the actual living of it, but kind of hitting a low point of being in this mental health place where you weren't feeling great. You had all this time and space. It's doesn't totally surprise me that that's kind of a, a moment of like refinding it. And yet, you know, I think in your story, what I'm hearing is it wasn't like a, oh, I found, I found you again. And now we're off to the races kind of thing. It was like, no, I actually still had some kind of some tweaking to do to figure out what my version of reconnecting with art is going to be or what our new relationship might look like. And social media and this pressure to just keep posting every day was just not working for you ultimately right away. Yeah. And it was hard to accept that because at the time, the my social circles, they were all art, artist folks who were on the social media game. They wanted to make a name for themselves online because that's the new container that modern artists use as a platform to spread their art. Like even just using these words make me like, it's kind of gross, you know? And I don't want to poo-poo those artists. Like they found their thing and they're doing great. Good for you. I just know that that's not the way that I want to share my art. Now, I realized quickly that I was making art for validation. And I think that's been happening for a long time. You know, when I was little, my parents paid attention to me in the midst of their chaos when I like made something. My art became this utility where uh, I got people's attention and then I could connect. So I make art for connection. Now, how I create that how I deliberately and intentionally create that connection is where I need to do a lot of exploring because there's validation, like like needing external validation and that energy being different from self-generated validation, like, ah, this feels good and that's good enough for me, right? So... Once I realized that I was making art to please other people, to get other people's approval, I had to step away from that and reevaluate the relationship with, with this partner, my, my artist. And I really wanted to be with other Asian American artists who struggled with the same things who were asking similar questions. And I found a local women of color healing arts organization. And that felt like a miracle to me. Other artists, other women artists, other Asian American artists who are pondering the same things. When I joined that cohort, I saw other Asian American women making art from their souls not for the sake of putting it online or uh, being invited to a gallery gallery for an exhibit, 
but to heal something from within. And by doing so, also healing intergenerational stuff. I was like, I didn't know that I could be a part of that lineage. And in that space, I realized I have a big mouth and I, I love storytelling. And for the first time, I realized that art is not just about like being alone and like sitting at my desk, like coloring and painting. It's, it can be more than that. My idea of artists started to expand. I can be on stage. I can tell stories. I didn't know that creativity was beyond the edges of paper. Mm. That's a, that's a mic drop moment (laughs) for me. Wow. Yeah. I mean, the miracle of finding this group and I'm so glad you brought it up because as you've been sharing your story, I've been really thinking about the the influence of having peers or community throughout. You talked about maybe early on feeling like more as an artist meant being on the outside and not necessarily having as many artist friends. And then more recently, you have had artist friends, but you saw a lot of them kind of taking to social media or, you know, adopting tactics that weren't truly feeling resonant for you. And so to find a group of people who are engaging with their own art in their own relationships in a way and being able to work things out with them, see yourself reflected in them. sounds really, really powerful. I know that was a big turning point for you. And maybe you've been talking about the page and I know early on your art took the form of illustration, but thinking about this multidisciplinary side of yourself and the work you do with improv and facilitation and so many other really connective practices. Do you conceptualize that as part of your art or do those feel kind of like sister modalities to your art practice? They're all connected. They're all connected because what I'm realizing now in this new chapter of my life, creating and claiming artists as the biggest part of my identity, it means that I bring bring that energy to every single thing that I do, everything. Uh, being a coach, facilitating, teaching improv, doing improv on stage, brushing my teeth, putting on my clothes, cooking my breakfast, all of that involves creative energy. So, Now, like, you know, how my creativity gets expressed as a facilitator, how my creativity gets expressed as a teacher, how my creativity gets expressed as an improviser, it's all slightly different, but it comes from that same source of this is how I authentically want to be me. The way I authentically brush my teeth, there's creative energy behind that. The way I choose to wear certain clothing, the way I choose to speak, all of that comes from the creative engine in me. That's also in all of us. Right. Yeah, that attentiveness to the the engine, sort of this hearth that's bringing energy into everything that you do feels really unifying. And I think of the word integrity, and I, I work with a lot of clients that I think are looking for that feeling of wholeness, even 
Coherence Studio, the name, I think is trying to convey the sense of like making sense to oneself. And I think the reason why I was so drawn to interview multi-hyphenate people, multidisciplinary artists is because there can be challenges at times in a world that is asking you to create a bio in, you know, 140 characters to feel consistent with oneself or to feel like the world can understand you and all the complexities that you hold. I guess I'm curious if you if you ever encounter moments where someone you can kind of tell someone's having a hard time wrapping their head around what you do and like how do you feel in those instances or how do you adapt your communication in order to try to like better connect with them? Yeah. I'm so glad you're asking this question because in my 20s, this was the hardest thing. This was the hardest thing to be with because I badly wanted to confidently say, I'm an artist. But what I told people was, I'm a, I'm a, um, a legal aide. I work at a law office because eventually I'm going to go to law school. And eventually I'm going to open up those LSAT books and take the LSAT. That's what I told people because that's what I thought people expected of me. And I didn't have the courage at the time to claim that because it didn't feel safe enough to do that. And so when I, when I left DC and I was surrounded by people who, like, you know, where I grew up in DC, it being a culture of the federal government, you know, it's, it's a very fairly conservative, everyone's kind of one note so if you're an artist, you really stand out and not in ways that is celebratory, but like a stick in the mud kind of sticking out. So it's hard to constantly be reminded of how outsider you are. For me, it was because I wasn't yet grounded in who I was. So when I when we moved out to California, I had it in my mind, everybody in California is a creative and they, you know, uh, no one, no one judges uh, artists out there because that's where all the artists are. Um, but I had to come to terms with you are judging being an artist as a bad thing. You're projecting that. So let's get clear on that first. And what is blocking you from owning that part of you? There was a lot of trauma that was blocking me from that. So once I start to heal that trauma over time, I started to see art and creating the way I used to when I was young. This is a pleasure practice. This is joyful. This connects me to the oneness of this planet. This also shows other people that they get to be their authentic selves, even if it's messy. And by the way, that mess is beautiful. When I started to connect creation and being an artist and making art that reflected that, I felt connected to people in a clean way, not in this clingy, I, I want your attention, please love me way. It's like, I see that you are also a vulnerable human being and you're touched by what I created. Let's talk about that. Let's unearth all the difficult things that society tells us not to connect over and be real. Let's sit crooked and talk straight. 
what really matters to us. Mm. <laughs> I'm going to make so many t-shirts with these amazing uh, sound bites. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sit crooked and talk straight. Yes, please. You talk about this healing journey that you went on and could imagine people listening might be on their own healing journey with their their artist self. What did that look like in practice? I feel like it's kind of an amorphous thing and hard to put words to, but if you were to try. Yeah, it's messy as fuck. I'm going to be honest about that. Um, the healing process requires you to look at what you've been avoiding because hard feelings are hard to feel. And we got to do the nine to five. We got to be present for our kids. We got to be present for our work. So we're, ha, feelings are inconvenient in that system, right? Now, on top of that, if you experience a lot of trauma, you have this huge backlog of feelings. So initially, the healing process was very, very, very destabilizing because I had to feel all the things that I didn't feel. Now, I realized that I could use all those feelings to express something. There's only so much sometimes words can do. There's only so much therapy you can do. There's things that have to come out of you that's not in words. It's either through like movement or yelling or just throwing paint and releasing that cathartically. Doing that over and over and over, I started to associate art as this healing agent. And especially when I share that with other people, that vulnerability starts to become the medicine. Now, being vulnerable is a skill. It's a skill. I had to teach myself, you're not going to use art to get validation from other people. You are simply going to share your art vulnerably so that you can be authentic by, by being okay with the mess of your humanity. Mm. Okay, there's another one. Yeah, vulnerability is a skill. That's kind of just blowing my mind right now. Like, to me, that can means that it's not something you're born with. It's something you can learn and practice and grow and get better at. And yeah, I'm really hearing how it is doing the hard work of being in touch with those those inconvenient, you know, feelings and connecting to them yourself. But also I'm hearing the this other part of it, which is connecting with other people, sharing sharing that vulnerability, sharing the mess, being seen in it. And so it's interesting to compare that to like the sharing that one might do of their art on in social media. That's sharing, you could say. What has the kind of more authentic sharing looked like for you? I love being in the beauty of raw mess. You know, the unsanitized, the unfiltered, just being a messy human being. How often in our lives do we have the space and the opportunity to be seen from that place when you are most vulnerable? In that cohort of women, of those um, Asian American artist women, every single one of us thought, I'm uniquely afflicted 
Like, it must just be me. The sense of I'm the only one who feels that way is so pervasive. Yet it is deeply human and deeply uh, normal. But it took creating art for us to see that. And when we started to notice, like, oh, they struggle with the same thing. Oh, that person is also feeling very uncomfortable sharing about, you know, trauma and, you know, having to explain what that art means about their trauma. When you are seeing other people making art from that vulnerable place, it gives you that courage. It gives you that modeling, very specific modeling. That's why I call this a skill. You have to watch other people do it. And my art practices now are connection practices because we have a biological imperative to be in connection with other people. And art is both a gentle and immediately effective way to feel whole again, to know who you are, and to see other people in their humanity with compassion. Hmm. Yeah, I've questioned why I gravitate so much to supporting creatives and artists when I think my creativity kind of comes in the realm of conversation and questions and at least historically in words. And I think it, when I've reflected on it, it's because just to to produce art feels like one of the most vulnerable and brave things that one can do. I have so much respect for someone who can create something and as an adult and say, Hey, look at, look what I made. Right. Cause it is so, um, something we do arguably more effortlessly as children, but the world kind of along the way puts up all these hurdles and obstacles to, to keep, to keep us confident and like self-assured that what we have to create and offer is valid. And I was thinking about your improv work and (laughs) you know we've talked a little bit about how many lessons can really be imbued within just an improv session I've talked to several people about my own just I've attended a few improv classes and they're like oh my gosh I would never do that right that's so I think people do have a sense that it can be a little scary or intimidating to not have a script and to be in front of other people and and so I was wondering if we could talk a bit about your work as an improv facilitator and when you look even at this sort of improv landscape where you feel like your particular approach sits yeah so my ex-husband was uh the one who gifted me improv at the end of our marriage i was going through a really bad depression cycle but i slowly started to come out of it and my ex at the time was like okay i have a window i have a window where I can come in and support her through art because we know Oran loves art. And uh, I went to my first improv class and the teacher said, all the mistakes that you think you're making on stage are gifts to your fellow improviser because they take that mistake and the whole scene unfolds from that. So me recovering, you know, perfectionist, me highly anxious, me really in my head all the time and not being dropped into my body 
What do you mean my mistakes are a gift? What do you mean that from this, there can be this whole, whole scene that blossoms? And it just blew my mind. And the fact that my whole body can be an instrument for creation, not just like what I say, not what I make with my hands, but my whole body being engaged as the medium. Something about that was very uh, liberating for me because at the time I didn't realize how, how disconnected I was from my body. So to reintroduce myself to the rest of my vessel and to use my elbow as like a way to express a feeling or to like lean on another person's like backside and like be this contorted monster who's having this like, you know, fight with their boss on stage. Like the possibilities are endless there. And to be a good improviser, you also have to surrender to your ideas are not going to be met sometimes. You're going to have to take the other person's idea and polish it up like it's the best thing on earth. So you drop your ego, you listen to the other person, and you see them as a creative genius because that's how they're seeing you. So this idea of yes and is so affirming. Like take, take the context of improv out of this. Who doesn't like hearing yes? And the and part, that's the part where collaboration, co-creation comes in. So the biological imperative to be in connection with other people, that happens in improv. When you are on stage as an improviser, you're a director, writer, performer, all at once. And people don't know this, but we're actually improvising all the time because we're not given a script to life and we're constantly meeting curveballs. So hello, y'all. We're all improvisers, actually. But when you come to an improv class, you like learn all these tricks and you, you learn all these skills and you can actually take them into your personal life. You become a better listener. You become uh, less attached to your ego. You become, you increase capacity to hear other people. You increase your capacity to see other people's ideas as genius. How could that not be helpful in a workplace? Yeah, it's, I could imagine someone just kind of flippantly thinking, oh, improv is just kind of going up and making, trying to make some jokes on the fly and just really not totally understanding the range of, of practices and gifts that can be cultivated in that kind of container of a space and then brought out into, in, into the world. Cause yeah, our world would be very different if everybody was a little bit more yes. And I, I know we've been talking a bit about the modalities or the the realms that you're working in. And I want to turn for a minute to sort of the, the, so what, or the why, or the, you know, the impact. And I, I think it, we've touched on it a little bit, but if someone were to go to your website or I think Instagram as well, there's, there's a title there that I want to really touch on, which is this idea of like an ancestral pattern shifter. And it, I, I have a hunch that maybe some of these modalities are all in service of that, but I don't know what that means to you. So could you share how all of these things might culminate around that shifting? Yeah. So the moniker ancestral pattern shifter is something that my mentor, Cynthia Tom, she's a Chinese American surrealist painter. She was actually the 
the director of the Women of, Women of Color Healing Arts Program. And um, she called every one of us ancestral pattern shifters. Now, what that means is if you look at your family tree, when you actually sit down and start to look at it, you will start to see patterns in behavior, in occupation, in choices people make, and then the branch comes to you. Now, she helped us uh, do our family trees in a very unique way. She told us, describe the characteristics of all these people in your family line. And so we started to see like, oh, Auntie Sue has been a melancholy person all her life. Oh wait, actually her mother was like that too. Actually the war, actually being dislocated from war. Like there's, you start to see that there is a bigger system at play that is impacting these individuals throughout the generations. Now there's me at that final branch. I started to see that my trauma, my depression, my anxiety, all the insecurities I have, a lot of that was inherited. Patriarchy, capitalism, white supremacy, those were all things that were hovering around my family tree and that directly impacted everybody in that tree. And for some reason, my ancestors tapped me with this big mouth, with this big curiosity. Why is it this way in our family? Why are we not talking about the elephant in the room? Why am I the black sheep? Why am I outsider? Because by talking about things that other people aren't talking about, by choosing to do things that other people don't choose to do, I am actively saying I want to do something different because there is a curse, there is this inherited pattern so that's why I go to therapy. That's why I choose to dig into being an artist. That's why I choose to be a community leader because my ancestors, especially the women, I imagine they all had big mouths. I imagine that they all had these big dreams, that they wanted to be something more than a homemaker. They wanted to pursue bigger things in life, but because of all these systems and expectations, they couldn't realize them. So I have a choice here. With that awareness, where do I fit? I can call myself an artist in this, in this iteration of life, but I think my true purpose on being, in being in this body, in this, in this cycle, is to be the alarm. Like, hey, we gotta look at this because this tree is rotting. So, Every time I choose to do something differently, and if it's in service of healing, I am shifting the pattern. I am creating a healthier branch so that future generations can build from there. That's an ancestral pattern shifter. I see that and powerful imagery, imagining this robust tree that's you can tell has signs of of rot and what that shifting might bring kind of new buds and, and new life to this, this impressive organism. What I love about what you said is how you realize 
because you could have looked back at some of the women in your lineage and thought, oh, they, they were just this way. And here I am kind of with these other qualities, but you're almost giving the benefit of the doubt that a lot of them had a lot of artistic tendencies and this desire to, to be heard, to have, you know, their voice and weren't really maybe born or into the conditions that enabled them. And here you are kind of with, with the world and the cultural context kind of affording, maybe making it a little bit easier, but still there's choice and you have to kind of concertedly make it, but there's a lot of maybe momentum that could easily pull you back into just keep being a pattern repeater. So it's clear to me that you're exemplifying, you're living this ancestral pattern shifting role and uh, imagine can be a, like a model and a beacon for other people who are trying to do the same. Feels like kind of a responsibility or does it ever feel kind of weighty? <laughs> Um, hearing back what you just said to me, it, 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 I mean, it does kind of feel that way, but somebody has to take responsibility. You know, um, I can't unsee what I saw. I can't unheal myself. And you're right. I, I have a lot of privilege of being, having access to healing, having the time where I can devote to exploring those parts of me. If I was in Korea or if I was born in a different generation, I probably wouldn't have gone to therapy. So I've learned that the, if you know that you're holding privilege, the best thing to do with that is to use that to free, liberate other people. So in that way, it is a responsibility, mm-hmm. but when I liberate myself, that energy of being liberated impacts every single being in my ecosystem. Mm. So it's, it's both a selfish endeavor, but by healing me, those nutrients are being spread throughout. Yeah. We started with this maybe metaphor or question of connecting to your art practice, and you've done a great job illuminating the different chapters of this relationship at this current point of what my sense is being a lot more connected to that part of yourself, but also not taking for granted that it's always going to be there. And like any relationship, it has to be worked on and invested in. What do you do when you notice, if ever you notice yourself feeling more distant from it or it's slipping away or yeah, just this impulse to bring it close. How do you get reconnected? Ooh. So when I'm moving too fast, when I'm being too serious about life, those are the moments when I, when I feel far from my creative practices. Now, I've started to experiment with calling my creative practices as pleasure practices because all this serious work that we do functioning as surviving living life in this matrix, we need to resource that with pleasure. 
And for me, creativity is always going to be a place of pleasure. So when I feel disconnected or far away, I've trained myself to recognize that as you need to go back and be playful. You need to go and be goofy. You need to make shitty art for the sake of making shitty art and just be in that cocoon of making just for you so that we can offset all the seriousness of adulting that, that I do so well. Let's bring back the child. Let's bring back the play. Let's bring back shoot the shit energy and balance it all out. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So something around the pace that you're moving at and the importance of the the prompts that we seed for ourselves all the time, right? I know you said you're a mindset coach. And so being really attentive to what we entertain in our thoughts. So if the question is, what should I be doing right now to be productive versus what would be a pleasurable, joyful thing for me to do? We're going to probably come up with pretty different answers. Yeah. So it's really cool to think about you being able to help other people intentionally choose the questions they want to answer. Yeah. And, you know, pleasure is productive. Like those, those, it's not a, they're not mutually exclusive. Just because you're having fun doesn't mean you're, you, you know what I mean? Like, mm -hmm. I think we have this like biased idea that if we're having fun and if it's not hard, then it must not be legitimate in some way. What if it could be done with ease? What if it could be done with play? Great point. <laughs> I'm so glad you brought that up. Yeah. Well, connection to self, to others feels like one big theme I'm taking from, from your work. And uh, on that note, if people that are listening wanted to connect with you, how could they do that? Well, they can find me on Instagram at Iran Makes. And if you want to chat, you can email me at oranleecoaching at gmail.com. Yeah, let's connect. Beautiful. Yeah, I am leaving this conversation feeling <laughs> inspired to think about my own pleasure practices and, and ancestral patterns. I feel like I have so much rich food for thought. So thank you for just sharing as openly and from the heart as, as you did. It's such a pleasure to be with you. Likewise, thank you for creating the space where I can just be me. All right, let's break it down together. Iran had so many amazing sound bites and quotes that I had a hard time picking one. But I think what I'd like to focus on for today is this idea that being vulnerable is a skill. It's not something that we are born with. You either have it or you don't. It is a practice. So how do we practice being vulnerable and why would we even do it? If you question, well, let's start out with what is vulnerability? <laughs> the dictionary definition, one of them says, it means being susceptible to physical or emotional attack or harm. Well, that doesn't sound ideal. But maybe if we take a, a bit more of an emotional approach to vulnerability, 
we can consult the vulnerability scholar Brene Brown's definition here, which is more about emotional exposure. So it does involve uncertainty and risk. And she poses the question, are we willing to show up and be seen when we can't control the outcome? So there is something unknown about what might happen in our vulnerable state. So why do this? Vulnerability is a pathway to connection. That is why we would dare risk being vulnerable. So if we want to experience true connection, we need to be vulnerable. And vulnerability isn't about winning or losing, but it's really about having courage to show up as yourself even if you are not sure how someone's going to receive it or you can't fully control the outcome. So what does this look like in practice? For me, it's sharing honestly and openly about what's on my mind and weighing on me. It's what's in my heart. It is communicating my true feelings. It's saying difficult things, even if they might be controversial to hear. It's willing to have a conflict if it means being closer and getting more aligned with somebody. And I think about nonviolent communication as a tool which follows a simple framework and it asks you to start by actually getting in touch with how you feel. One of the biggest benefits I've received from learning about nonviolent communication is This idea of really simplifying your language when it comes to feelings. Mostly to not use language that uses some sort of additional judgment. So, for example, if I say, I felt abandoned when you left the room. That implies that someone abandoned me, right? Versus saying, I felt sad or I felt scared. So if we can use this base language about feelings instead of using the kind of communication that can really mask how we feel or kind of obscure it. I think it really has the benefit of opening people's ears, the people we're trying to connect with, to really hear us. So to practice, we might start small. We might not (laughs) go off and tell our family members what we've really been thinking. We might choose lower stakes situations. But it does take, again, a little bit of a a risk. And so I think about the idea of a comfort zone, a stretch zone, and the danger zone. And ideally, we want that vulnerability to feel somewhere near the comfort slash stretch zone. So it's not putting you wildly out of your comfort zone to where you're in the danger zone. So being selective about which kind of situation, which person you share with. Maybe it's a friend that you feel like you're ready to to test out talking about a new topic. Maybe it's resisting the temptation to paint an only rosy picture of how life is going by actually sharing something that's difficult. Because a lot of vulnerability, I think, does live in that space of things that are challenging. And even sometimes that challenge could be about having strong feelings, about having passion or desire or wanting or love. 
So my ask of you this week is to notice situations or conversations where you are teetering on saying a little bit more, on sharing a little bit more, giving a bit more of an authentic, deeper look at what you're emotionally feeling and see if you can share a little bit of it, see how it goes, see how someone reacts, see how it feels to be in a different kind of connection with them. And know that this is a skill you can return to at any time. Thanks for listening. Have a beautiful day.